The Men Who Lost America Speaker, Professor Andrew O'Shaughnessy Professor, Arts and Sciences, History I'm very grateful to Althea for that introduction. I did indeed travel with her to Oxford two years ago and we were at Lord North's College, Trinity. Lord North being the Chancellor uh, and at the University of Oxford, but having known as Prime Minister during the American Revolution. And I've always said Oxford and the University of Virginia should be sister colleges, because both were the home of the Cavaliers. Uh, Oxford literally was the headquarters of the Cavaliers during the English Civil War, and Charles I moved there from uh, London. And they both have students who say that they are the homes of lost causes. And in the case of Oxford, one of the greatest causes that they lost was the American Revolutionary War. Although I don't think anyone here is probably too disappointed about that. <laughs> and I thought just for humor uh, at the beginning, uh, I would show you the two covers of the book. One is the uh, cover here in the US done by Yale University Press, which is um, a particularly beautiful edition because it has color illustrations. I never make claim to the content of the book, but I can claim that no book on the American Revolutionary War has more red colored plates. <laughs> and the other is from the British publisher. And the covers are both different, but they both have the same painting on the front. And that is a painting by an American artist, John Singleton Copley. And it's actually a painting of a scene outside of America during the American Revolution. The British, as you might expect, did not paint the American Revolutionary War. It's very difficult to find anything done by the British artist, which means you generally have to rely on that great sequence of paintings that is Thomas Jefferson who suggested and who arranged by John Trumbull. You know, the two of them met in uh, Paris. So the trouble with the Trumbull paintings is that everybody's seen them. They've not seen this. Uh, it's actually a scene from Gibraltar during the American Revolution, which reinforces one of the themes of the book about how this was a global war. And uh, it used to uh, hang in Gibraltar for about 40 years, beginning in the Second World War. It was moved to Gibraltar for safe keeping, which is another reason you've not seen it. And it is now today the Guildhall Art Gallery, which is probably not the first art gallery you will head for if you go to London, although I can highly recommend it because the city of London was always a major financial center and it purchased very good paintings. But the Yale, the US cover, in many ways reinforces an image that the book is uh, aimed to uh, overthrow. And that is the supercilious British commander and his assistant. It really does show two leaders. And friends of mine look at this image and joke that the junior commander almost looks as though he's saying, are you being serious? <laughs> and um, 
there's this sort of figure that looks almost Christ-like that's being crucified in the bottom left-hand corner. It has my full name, Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. Jackson was my mother's maiden name, but my father had studied American government in college and was a great fan of Andrew Jackson. It has to be said, his uh, admiration was based on the Arthur Schlesinger biography that appeared just at, after the end of the Second World War. Uh, about the same time, in fact, as Dumas Malone started his great six-volume biography of Thomas Jefferson, and Schlesinger said nothing about Indian removal, so uh, it was entirely because he just regarded Jackson as a good Democrat. And then we'll see that the subtitle is slightly different in the British and American version. The American version, and both publishers insisted I have a subtitle. I didn't want one. I thought the net title of the book was self-explanatory, but then I discovered uh, that when I talked to people, according to which side of the aisle they stood on, they thought it was either about the previous administration or about the current. So I, suppose, I suppose it did need a subtitle, but it's really brief leadership, the American Revolution and the fate of the empire. So here's the British cover. It's exactly the same painting, but it's almost, the camera's gone out. Uh, the painting is like a mural. It's virtually life size. And this time, instead of just the commander and the subordinate, you see this great rugby scrum of red coats, and they look as though they're winning, which they are, in fact, in this particular scene, which was why Copley painted it for the uh, British. But as British publishers told me, no one in England is interested in defeat. They don't want to read about wars they lost, only about where they were successful. So this really uh, looks as though you're reading about a victory, and indeed the last section of the book is called Victory, which I'll explain the reasons for later. They insisted on removing my middle name uh, because they said it made me sound American, which I am. I took citizenship. But, uh, and then uh, the subtitle is changed. Instead of British leadership, it's British command that has a slightly different tone. And instead of the fate of the empire, it's the preservation of the empire. So I just want to alert you that marketing does enter into history, even though uh, as academics we're trying to write objectively uh, and independently. This was a war that supposedly Britain should have won. They won what in Europe is called the Seven Years War, what in America is called the French and Indian War. That was the war fought between 1754 here in America and 1763 that really made Britain the premier global power. That was the war in which they took Canada and the Northwest, including areas like Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. But they also took Bengal, which really was to become the major British footprint in India, the British already had Madras and Bombay, but Bengal, with its huge population, uh, would be basically the foothold from which Britain would 
ultimately uh, conquer India. Uh, they also took islands in the Caribbean, in fact, including Havana, Martinique, and Guadeloupe, which they were to give back after the peace. Uh, but it, it was a huge victory. It was soon after that time that someone, Lord McCartney, coined the phrase that it was the empire upon which the sun never set. That phrase predates the beginning of the American Revolution. After the American Revolution, the British went on to win the French Revolutionary Wars, and they defeated Napoleon, who many, of course, think of as the uh, great general in history. Uh, this happens to be the anniversary of 1815 of Waterloo, uh, and that was uh, fought by people who'd been present at battles like Saratoga and Yorktown as younger officers. So the question is, what went wrong? Why this aberration? Why did they lose the American Revolution? And the popular answer for that is that it was lost by bad leadership, that they were simply led by buffoons. And I've always thought that was an odd assumption, but it's very popular among lay people, and I'm going to give you a cinematic version of that in a short while. It's a very popular idea, and yet in many ways it diminishes the achievement of the Patriots and of George Washington and Nathaniel Green. Um, it's an idea and an image that's popular also in Britain. If anything, they, uh, they, they helped to start and to perpetuate that idea when they tried to explain to themselves why did they lose America. They blamed their leadership, which is always, of course, a popular way to explain events. Uh, no one in England worries about these caricatures because they themselves have created them. My only concern was that I felt that it deflected from the real reasons why Britain lost America. And this book is really trying to give a very different interpretation of what went wrong. And in order to do that, I've looked at the leaders themselves, 10 leaders, uh, the leading political figures, because it's very important to appreciate that military decisions are often made in the context of political pressures, and that the politicians were involved in the decision-making, and then obviously the leading military figures, both naval and army. And the 10 people that I chose, uh, to me, are the key decision-makers, and I set this up a little bit like a play, that each person is brought on stage at the point in which they were really crucial to the action. So although it's 10 uh, biographical accounts, they're all interconnected to tell a cumulative story. And they all basically reinforce the idea that these were people of real substance, uh, that they weren't mediocrities, they weren't simply the next in line, they weren't just part of the good old boy system, even though Britain was an aristocratic system, it certainly was not uh, uh, a system based entirely on merit. Uh, but as we'll see, uh, there was great competition among 
the upper classes to hold these positions. And unlike continental Europe, there were real opportunities for middle class people in England. It was never a caste system. Uh, Britain never had the rule that the French army introduced during the American Revolution. They had to have a title in order to hold a senior command post. Now, obviously, one of the people you'd expect to find in the book is George III. He is a critical figure throughout. Uh, he is the person, of course, who James Jefferson famously called a tyrant. And two-thirds of the Declaration of Independence were written against George III. But interestingly, George III was not the person who created the policies that caused the American Revolution. Just as today, policies were enacted in the name of the king or queen, but they were actually devised by the politicians, by the prime minister, and by the cabinet. But you can keep George III as a villain, because George III became obsessed with the American War, and he ultimately helped to prolong the length of the war, because he thought it was so important. He was so obsessed with this war that he twice wrote out his abdication speech and considered going back to the family lands in Hanover. Uh, he felt it was important because he felt if Britain lost America, it would cease to be a great power. This painting is done by his favorite artist, Benjamin West, ironically an American from Pennsylvania, at the height of the war. It shows George III in his war mode, uh, done in 1779. He virtually became his own prime minister. He dominated the man who was actually prime minister who was trying to resign. He was holding the cabinet together in the summer about the time that this portrait was done. He even called all the politicians to his house, which is now Buckingham Palace. He took them into the library and asked them all to sit down, which had been unheard of, apart from an incident in the reign of Queen Anne. And he then gave them a pep talk, like a, uh, a coach, and said, we're basically all in this together. You know, if we went back and rethought earlier British policies, we probably wouldn't have done this as we did, but we chose the best generals, and we must go forward, because if we don't succeed, Britain will uh, end up being one of the minor powers of Europe. Uh, he has been likened even by a historian writing at the time of Churchill to Winston Churchill in his phrases. He'd make comments like, if any 10 men will stand beside me, I intend to go off. And he wouldn't uh, allow his prime minister to resign, nor would he negotiate with opposition politicians who, by the middle of the war, were committed to basically withdrawing from America and who had already decided it was a lost cause. Lord North, the Prime Minister here, in uh, his robes as Chancellor at Oxford, um, a similar painting, is hanging at Trinity and out there, and I would sit dining under it uh, along with a group from UVA every uh, night. Now, Lord North was responsible for the policies that led to the American Revolution. Uh, he was responsible for the infamous Tea Act. 
And in response to the Boston uh, Tea Party, it was his government that passed what in Britain are called the Coercive Acts, what in America are called the Intolerable Acts. Uh, North, though, very quickly tried to backtrack. And this really uh, was what intrigued me about him. He very early realized that Britain made the wrong decision. He was taken by surprise at the unanimity of the 13 colonies. He really began to change his mind when he saw the deliberations of the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia, which was held in September of 1774, but the information about what happened did not arrive in Britain until early December of 1774, at which point North immediately tried to start to look for a compromise. Uh, he even arranged for uh, uh, intermediaries to talk to Benjamin Franklin, who was still in London. Early the next year, he passed an act in Parliament which basically offered Americans the opportunity to tax themselves uh, and uh, that Britain would give up the right of taxation. And in the middle of the war, in 1778, he sent a peace commission over to America, which essentially gave up any claims to tax America. It would repeal all legislation passed since the French and Indian War, and all he wanted was token British authority over America. Uh, he became so disenchanted that he kept offering his resignation to George III. He believed that he was an impediment to any kind of negotiation. But ironically, uh, today he's regarded as the worst prime minister in British history. Uh, this is this is often repeated if you want to really uh, you know, attack the sitting prime minister, you say, uh, you are the worst prime minister since Lord North. <laughs> in actual fact, he was extremely able. No prime minister in the 18th century before William Pitt the Younger towards the end of the 18th century, no prime minister held office throughout a war as uh, uh, North did. Uh, he followed a succession of seven different administrations that had all lasted less than about a year and a half. Uh, he was a good party manager. He was one of the ablest speakers in the House of Commons at any time. He would typically arrive in Parliament about midday when the session started to uh, heat up and he'd be there quite often from the early hours of the morning without a recess the next day. He was there three days a week. Uh, David Cameron and his predecessor, Tony Blair, spent usually one hour a week in Parliament doing Prime Minister's question time. North was doing this three days a week, as well as running the Exchequer and various departments of government. And he was a brilliant debater. And he often got the best of his opponents. He spoke for about two hours without a single note. He was also a brilliant financier. And ironically, it was his financial acumen 
and his ability to negotiate loans for the British government that enabled them to fight this war for so long. There is one chapter in the book with two people in it. Uh, these are the two brothers who were commanders at the beginning of the war, Sir William Howe, the general, and his brother, Lord Richard Howe, the admiral. Now this sounds the ultimate good old boy, uh, because they were brothers, and they were commanding the army and the navy together. But Sir William Howe insisted if he was to serve, that his older brother, Richard, was to command the navy. And that was very smart, because there was no supreme commander, no, uh, uh, no senior person who was in charge of the army and the navy. And this was a very effective way to get coordination between the two services. So William Howe was a great pioneer, as was his brother in, in warfare. It was Sir William Howe who had experimented with light infantry. These were like modern-day commanders. Uh, these were troops who would be good in irregular warfare of the type that the British knew they would encounter in America. But his brother, the one who was in fact given command at the insistence of uh, his younger brother, the Admiral, the Admiral would go on to be one of Britain's leading naval heroes. And this shows what a thin line there is between success and failure. Uh, this, the Admiral, uh, was really the person who wrote the blueprint for what is known as amphibious warfare, for using the army and navy together. He very possibly designed the flat bottom ships, and he certainly introduced them very much like those used on D-Day, in which troops would run off a boat, the bow would go forward like a gangplank, and you could get them on land very quickly. These two brothers, on an afternoon within about three hours, in early August of 1776, landed 15,000 men and 40 cannon on Staten Island, uh, on the Staten Island beach. Uh, they were really a formidable pair. John de Goyle, the British general who lost at Saratoga, he, uh, up until the American Revolution, was regarded as one of the rising stars in the British army. And again, the people who were chosen were chosen on the basis of ability. In order to find these generals, the British skipped over 105 more senior generals in the British army. And Sir William Howe was 106, uh, Burgoyne was 107, and there were only 110 generals in the entire British army. In other words, they went for some of the youngest people who were thought to have had the most relevant experience. Many of them had had experience in America during the successful French and Indian War. Uh, Burgoyne, incident was one of the first to write about the conditions of the army and to take an interest in ordinary soldiers. He also studied the armies of Europe by doing a tour shortly after the French and Indian War. The politician who was most responsible for the uh, war in London was Lord George Germain. There is only one scholarly biography of Lord George Germain, and the biographer begins 
I detest this matter. <laughs> it's, very, it's very, very rare to biography. <laughs> you generally want to study people that you like and uh, admire. But uh, this was a very able administrator. He served himself in the army. Uh, this was a person who was initially credited by everyone with bringing a new dynamism into the war. He was appointed shortly after the Battle of Bunker Hill, and entirely due to him, the British were able to get 35,000 men across the Atlantic, uh, bringing the entire force in America up to about 55,000. It involved essentially uh, taking every merchant ship uh, not just naval ships, but the merchant ships to carry all these troops across. There was a German mercenary who said that uh, the conditions on board were such that if you wanted to turn in the night, you had to shout out so that everybody else turned in the night. And they were coming from Germany. About a third of the British troops by the end of the war were German mercenaries. They were coming from Ireland and they were coming from England. It was an incredible logistical uh, endeavor, and he succeeded in it. And this was probably one of my favorite, uh, Sir Henry Clinton, who again is um, the subject of only one biography. He was the commander-in-chief for the second half of the war. He succeeded to Sir William Howe. Uh, the one biography of Clinton is quite good, uh, very good in fact, but it was written at the height of psycho-history. And so we are told that Clinton had a distant father, an overbearing mother, and that he was a neurotic. The biography is right in one respect, he was neurotic. Uh, when uh, a young captain walked into his office shortly after he was appointed, he saw his commander-in-chief in tears, and uh, Clinton looked up and pointed to the center of the door and said, I would rather be in the place of that man than in my position as commander-in-chief. The point that I make is he was neurotic because more than anyone else, he understood this war and understood how likely it was that Britain would fail. He understood it at a number of different levels. It was he who understood that this was ultimately not a war uh, like any war that Britain had fought, that this was a war where public opinion was critical. He, in fact, created the phrase winning hearts and minds. He said, we need to win the hearts and subdue the minds of America. And he argued that the only way you could do this was to move incrementally through America, building up support. He argued the loyalists couldn't be left to themselves. Uh, they would always need regular soldiers to support them. And in many ways, what he was anticipating were exactly the tactics that Nathaniel Green used to win in the South. He understood, too, and incidentally, is the most cerebral and well-read officer in the British Army. There are at least 30 
notebook, some his notes on military manuals, military history in the, in the John Ryan's library in Manchester. And he also understood the importance of the Navy in this war. That uh, his father had been an admiral, his father had actually been governor of uh, New York, his uncle had been an admiral, and he predicted that at any point that a superior French Navy appeared at sea, Britain could lose. Any detachment of British troops could be cut off. He was commander-in-chief at a time when Britain was at war, first with France, then with Spain, and then with Holland. He was being expected to win this war with fewer troops than his predecessors. And that's why he was neurotic. And the, of the military commanders, the final one, Cornwallis, is one who we know of here in Virginia, who was defeated at Yorktown. It's interesting that all the generals who were defeated were junior generals and were people who were risk takers. The senior generals, someone like Sir William Howe, was never actually defeated in a battle in which he commanded. Clinton suffered a defeat early in his career at Charleston, but for the rest of his career he was very successful, and he was a brilliant critic of his commander, Sir William Howe. Uh, Cornwallis again shows the thin line between success and failure. He was defeated here in Virginia, but a few months earlier, he had defeated Horatio Gates, the great victor of Saratoga, the man who commanded the Continental Army at Saratoga, the turning point of the war, uh, at the Battle of Camden in South Carolina. And he later went on to have a highly successful career. That is, as, um, firstly, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, where he was put down the Irish Rebellion, the Great Irish Rebellion of 1798, and as Governor General of India, where he eventually died, and there are two huge monuments to him in India, and he's regarded as having been one of the most successful Governor Generals. And finally, there are two naval figures in the book, Sir George Rodney, uh, a person who probably historians wouldn't have expected to find in this book because he was the most successful British admiral in the Navy until Nelson. During the American Revolution, he captured or killed three admirals from three different European countries. He killed a Dutch admiral, and he captured both a Spanish admiral and a French admiral, and the French admiral he captured was Admiral de Grasse, the French admiral who'd won the Chesapeake Capes off Virginia, which helped to seal the fate of Cornwallis. A few months afterwards, Rodney defeated him and the major bulk of the French fleet in a battle known as the Battle of the Saints in April 1782. And then the final number 10, the Earl of Sandwich, and if you've not heard of him, you have, because every time you have a snack, you commemorate him. He worked hard and played hard and would just put meat between pieces of bread, whether he was gambling or writing uh, lengthy reports. Uh, this is the person who, after Germain, of the civilians, is blamed more than anyone else for the British defeat in America. 
uh, he was First Lord of the Admiralty. That put him in charge of the Navy. And the Navy lost, really, its only battle of the 18th century during the American Revolution. The British were always, first and foremost, a naval power rather than an army power. They hadn't been significantly defeated by the French since the early 1690s. The big defeat was here off the coast of Virginia at the Chesapeake Capes, and he was blamed, and it was argued he didn't have the Navy in sufficient state of preparation. But he was utterly innocent of the blame because he had told the government, even before the Battle of Bunker Hill, that they should fully mobilize the entire Navy. This man had been in administration before most of the other members of government were even born. He was a veteran. Uh, the Navy was his passion. He'd served in the military, ironically in the Army, but the Navy uh, was really his uh, great love. And he had said every time Britain fights a war, it's caught unprepared. Uh, it takes too long to mobilize the Navy. Better mobilize it early on. He took it for granted that the French would get into this war. His advice was ignored. The Navy was cut rather than uh, expanded. And it was only towards the end of the war that um, it was ready uh, and was able to defeat the French Navy, in many ways he had the last laugh because a month or two after he was forced out of power, the British and the Admiral that he had appointed, Rodney, succeeded against the French at the Saints. And to his great pleasure, the, um, that Admiral had been removed by, uh, by his opposition who'd come into uh, government. Now I'm just going to show you briefly a video clip uh, just to show you how these people have sort of been regarded in, um, in the way that we, uh, let's see if we can get this up, how these people are, have been regarded um, by uh, cinema. If I can't get it up, I will just, uh, I'll just describe it. Uh, this scene is, in fact, from uh, a film of Mel Gibson called The Patriot. Uh, and you may think that's an unfair shot because all the historians criticized The Patriot at the time. Uh, but in actual fact, the way he depicts Cornwallis is typical of every movie about the American Revolution. Cornwallis is shown as more worried about winning uh, or getting his horse, his um, dogs back than winning the war. And he's shown as more worried about his sartorial elegance than he is about uh, uh, fighting in the South. Now, the real Cornwallis uh, was indeed the most aristocratic of all the generals. But this was the man who, when he got to Ramses Mill in North Carolina, cast aside all of his... Um, belongings. He slept outside without tents. His men admired him because he suffered the same deprivations as they suffered. And he later went on to Ireland where, and India, where far from being someone who was concerned about his sartorial elegance, 
was the most humble of leaders. In Ireland, he refused to have proper security escort and was ne nearly assassinated in Phoenix Park. He refused to live in the castle, but in the surrounding park. And in India, he did away with all the pomp and circumstance. So the real Cornwallis is the opposite to that depicted in the movie. And this is true of virtually all of these figures that I've described. They were very near to modern professionals in the way that they approach their task. So I'm going to, to explain very briefly, a kind of elevated pitch version, why the British lost America. If it wasn't because of bad leadership, why did they lose? And the first and foremost reason was that they had an army of conquest, not an army of occupation. They were able to take every American city at some point during the war. But whenever they tried to take territory, they failed. The great example is here in the South. And the example of Cornwallis. Uh, he and Clinton took Charleston, the biggest city in the South. They then um, won the Battle of Camden and defeated Horatio Gates. Cornwallis had basically wiped out the Continental Army in the South. The rest of the con Continental Army was in New York with Washington. It could not move from New York because the main bulk of the British Army was up in New York under Clinton. And so uh, Cornwallis essentially had the South to himself. There was only just a small uh, core of professional troops left. But there his troubles began because he faced what today we would call insurgencies, fought by people like Thomas Sumter, uh, the Gamecock, or Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. Uh, these were bands of partisans, in some cases militia, who would cut his supply lines and force him to leave troops at every stage until increasingly his army uh, was becoming too widely distributed. The point about the American Revolution, of course, is that it was not just a revolution. It was also a civil war. 19,000 Americans fought for the British, and the great error the British made was to assume that they would never need an army of conquest because the support was already here in America. They assumed the majority of Americans would support them. They were being told this by some of America's leading politicians from before the American Revolution, like Joseph Galloway of Philadelphia, one of the key figures in the Continental Congress. Galloway was telling the British months before Yorktown, four out of five Americans support Britain. Uh, that support never materialized. Whenever push came to shove, the British would find themselves outnumbered as Cornwallis did at uh, Yorktown. The problem for the British was that their very presence of their army alienated even the potential for support. Armies pillage, armies misbehave, uh, and that antagonized uh, some of the residual support. Because Americans, in some cases, continued to change allegiances. 
Uh, it was said by one loyalist, you never knew what other people thought, especially in some of the areas close to the British lines. People were very tentative about their real opinions, and they may even change sides. But essentially, they were changing sides more and more towards the Patriot cause. Obviously, the British had real problems with logistics, fighting 3,000 miles away. Because they never took territory, they could never feed their army in America, and they had to get 37 tons of food a day from England over to America, a huge logistical feat for this uh, period. They were eventually fighting a world war uh, in which they uh, had 200,000 people mobilized across the world, and increasingly more and more of their troops and navy were concentrated in the Caribbean, not in North America. But ultimately, and that's why I finished this by saying it was not entirely a defeat, ultimately they had not failed. They could, as George III urged them after Yorktown, they could go on. The army, the main army was still in place in New York. Cornwallis was only a detachment of the British army. They still held East Florida and St. Augustine. They still had Charleston and Savannah. Uh, they still had um, New York. They still had Canada. They could have continued. What changed was opinion in Britain that there was no longer public support for the war and the uh, party of Lord North could no longer command majorities in the House of Commons. Now, I was asked once, having explained this, well, where does that leave the role of sharpshooters, uh, the role of George Washington? And, of course, although the argument of this book is that a British victory was unlikely, it might still have happened but for all the other factors that we learn about in school here. Uh, the British, by the end of the war, spoke with admiration about the soldiers who'd opposed them. Uh, I have a long section in my final chapter, the very people who criticized the ability of Americans to fight at the beginning of the war were some of the most outspoken advocates of the ability of uh, the Continental Army. I'm not sure that another commander other than Washington could have been so successful, especially when you think who the other commanders were. Thank you. Would you like... So it's only a minute video, and Althea would like me to share it. I would like to take some questions, but at the very, very end... I'd also like to show you another video clip, and this is of John Adams as Minister Plenipotentiary, or what today we'd call Ambassador, presenting his credentials to George III. And unlike the Mel Gibson movie, uh, this is superbly filmed, partly because the dialogue is based on the letter that John Adams wrote the next day to Abigail describing exactly what had happened. So I'll show that at the very end after questions, but this is the scene from Mel Gibson where it shows Cornwallis more concerned about his dogs and about his uniform 
than about winning the war. Yes, 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 my lord, it has. Yes. Then why am I still wearing this rag? My lord, your replacement wardrobe is aboard ship, but Colonel Tabington thought it best to secure our arms and munitions first. They are being unloaded now. Is there no decency? And in fact, um, in the longer version of that, they show the person playing the role modelled on Bannister Tarleton. Uh, just knocking back something that looks more like a martini. <laughs> so you ready for questions? Yes. Incidentally, um, it's June the 6th today. Tarleton invaded uh, Charleston on the 4th of June, which happened to be George III's birthday and has ever since become the official birthday of the uh, monarch. Um, and he sent some of his dragoons up to Monticello and they took possession of it. And when I gave my very first talk to a group at Monticello, at the end, they had a toast to Bannister Tarleton as the first savior of Monticello because he gave specific orders that British troops were not to destroy or do any damage to Monticello, uh, which was an aberration in his career because he's otherwise uh, famous uh, for almost being a war criminal. Uh, certainly, he became Britain's leading spokesman for the slave trade after the war. And if you see the film about Wilberforce, um, uh, you'll see that uh, Tarleton is the person who's represented in that film as the leading opponent of Wilberforce. First question. Yes. Um, one of the things you talk about in your book is when George Germain um, took over, he was under a cloud of um, I guess people had accused him of cowardice earlier in his career. What impact did that have on his ability to govern and get adherence to whatever the government wanted to do? Well, it was amazing that the person who was put in charge of the operation, the, the civilian, Lord George Germain, had been accused of cowardice during the Seven Years' War. He'd been present at the Battle of Minden, in which he'd commanded 3,000 cavalry. Uh, you know, this was a battle on a scale far bigger than anything fought here in America. And he'd, ref he'd failed to charge. And it was notorious because the British, uh, with their German allies, had essentially defeated the French army. And if he had charged at the end, they could have destroyed the French army and prevented it from retreating. It's a bit like the debate on Gettysburg, you know, should Lee have charged at the end and made a final, uh, oh, sorry, rather the Union, should they have gone after uh, Lee at the end of the Gettysburg. And um, uh, the problem was that court-martials in this period were highly political. 
Uh, during the same war, a British admiral called Bing was also court-martialed for failing to uh, attack the French fleet and protecting Menorca. And he was actually shot on board his own ship. But it was understood these were intensely political. Uh, Germain was the one who demanded he be given a court-martial. Um, and it was not necessarily the end of his career. Indeed, it was always argued that he was using the American Revolution to overturn that verdict on his life, or as uh, Walpole put it, to win Germany in America. It gave him a real grit in his teeth to make this a successful war. Yes? Um, oh. uh, is this? Okay. Um, also then one at the back. Um, uh, <laughs> um, oh, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'll, I'll repeat. All right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> anyway, anyway, it, oh, great. Anyway, anyways, I've always, um, read, um, that, um, as, that espionage on both sides was, so how much of that do you cover in your book? I talk about it a bit, especially with Sir Henry Clinton, who was really responsible for building up the espionage on the British side. And the espionage was actually very good on both sides. Uh, so the British knew a great deal about what the patriots in Boston were doing, and they knew that uh, the leaders and the ammunition were out at Lexington and Concord, because they had uh, essentially someone who was a traitor to the Bostonians who was informing them. Uh, the great example, I mean, Clinton hoped that a major American leader would defect. And uh, he believed that there were several willing to do it. But it was Clinton who opened up the uh, correspondence with Benedict Arnold. And he was really banking on this. It was a good strategy. Arnold was going to give them the uh, plans to West Point. Arnold was ordering the troops protecting West Point. He was scattering them through the country. And George Washington, with the army commanders, was going to be in the vicinity. And Clinton was willing, ready to rush with his troops up the Hudson and essentially... Uh, no, surround them. Uh, it only failed because by chance the intermediary Major John Andre was captured a mile from British lines in a kind of no man's land in upstate New York. Uh, that plan came very near to success. So yes, espionage was very good on both sides. It was impossible really to keep anything secret uh, because people could move so easily between lines. Right here, Andrew. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, touch on in a second the main failure uh, for Burgoyne's campaign down the Hudson that obviously ended with the Battle of Saratoga. A lot of what you read was just simply the movement down from Canada itself, which, which hurt them, whether it was the supply lines getting stretched thin or you know, the, uh, the wives and families of the British officers. I was just wondering if you could just kind of state what you think the main reason for the failure of that campaign. Well, and that, that campaign is a wonderful illustration of how the British could not take territory. Because Burgoyne thought that once he took Fort Ticonderoga, 
he would essentially walk through friendly territory, largely loyalist territory, to Albany. When he entered, uh, you know, when he crossed Lake Champlain, uh, he was outnumbering Horatio Gates by two to one. When he got to Saratoga, he was outnumbered uh, by four or five to one, if you include the militia as well. Um, that was critical. Uh, it didn't help that, um, you know, essentially detachments of his army were defeated at places like Hubbardton uh, and that his progress was slowed down. Uh, and General Schuyler was very smart in having troops uh, knock down trees to block his passage uh, so that what should have taken um, 10 days uh, turns into a march of several weeks. Nor have they really uh, understood exactly the problems of the locale, the direction of the streams of the rivers, uh, the difficulty of going through wooded territory this is where maps can be so deceptive. And remember, people in London and in uh, America were, were relying a lot on maps. But the favorite belief about Saratoga is that the British commanders were not all on the same page, that Germaine had simply failed to tell how to go from Philadelphia to support um, Burgoyne in Albany. In reality, they'd all assumed that there was enough support that Howe could march down to Philadelphia and eventually at some time join Burgoyne and that Burgoyne would not need support because he'd basically be surrounded by friendly territory. Yes. Oh, yes, I had uh, two questions. On the first two uh, portraits you had of uh, George and his military regalia or frock, he has uh, a decoration or an emblem on his left and also on his right breast. Yes. Uh, would you happen to know the distinction I, for it's that? It's the Knight of the Garter on his left. Which, Thank you. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and take a, a real look at the one on his uh, right. Uh, it's interesting that both his great-grandfather and his grandfather had been born in Germany, George I and George II. His father died before he came to the throne. And neither of them were native English speakers. So George III was very keen, essentially, to present himself as the first real English king, the first person born in England speaking English since uh, Queen Anne. And, you know, the appearance of him constantly wearing red coats was part of this emphasis to uh, demonstrate his patriotism and his identification with the English. Unlike his great-grandfather and grandfather, he didn't worry much about the family lands in Hanover because that was very unpopular with the English who felt they'd been drawn into all these European wars because of the Hanoverians. Uh, and the, and a quick, there was one person uh, who waited... Uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> at the very end, and then I'll show you the clip. But if anyone still wants to talk, we can uh, have a chat afterwards. So here's your final exam question. <laughs> if, if you were to write an alternate... ...whereby the revolutionary world was appointed or deferred, how would 
destroy it like that. Well, actually, if the British had offered uh, the opposition in America the terms they offered in 1778, if they'd offered 10 years earlier, you know, repeal of all legislation passed since the French and Indian War, the removal of all taxes, uh, you know, basically just token British authority, that could almost have succeeded. I, I do see this as a war essentially provoked by Britain. I do see the patriots as reluctant revolutionaries. Uh, they, they wouldn't even think about independence, even after the war had started. Uh, both Jefferson and George Washington said they did not start to consider independence until 1775. And they said that at a time in their life and career where they really had no need to make such a claim. Uh, indeed, they might have wanted to backdate the time and to uh, suggested that there were profits and foreseeing that Americans really wanted to be independent. Uh, Americans had been very good British imperialists and uh, essentially they felt that it was Britain that had changed the method and system of government and they were right to believe that. Britain was in the process after the French and Indian War of centralizing its empire and trying to find a method of revenue from the empire that uh, would have ultimately led to high taxes. Right, so I've got to show you this. I, it's really quite moving. Uh, the original scene happened in St. James's Palace, and as I say, it's based on dialogue that John Adams wrote. Mr. John Adams! States of America. The United States of America have appointed me Minister Plenipotentiary to Your Majesty. I think myself 
more fortunate than all of my fellow citizens in having the, the distinguishing honor to be the first to stand in your majesty's presence in a diplomatic character. I shall esteem myself the happiest of men if I can be instrumental in restoring the confidence and affection better words, the good old nature and the good old humor between peoples who, though separated by an ocean and under different governments, have the same language, similar religion. And kindred blood. Majesty's permission to add that though I have been before entrusted by my country it was never in my whole life in a manner more agreeable to myself Circumstances of this audience are so extraordinary. The language you have now held is so extremely proper, and the feelings you have discovered so justly adapted to the occasion that I not only receive with pleasure the assurance of the friendly disposition of the United States but that I am very glad that the choice has fallen on you to be their minister. I will be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Thank you, Your Majesty. opinion among some people, Mr. Adams, that you are not the most attached of all your countrymen to the manners of France. <laughs> uh, yes, well, I avow to your majesty that I have no attachment to any country but my own. An honest man will never have any other.
I pray, Mr. Adams, that the United States does not suffer unduly from its want of a monarchy. Yes, we will, we will strive to answer those prayers, Your Majesty. 